21st century thinking and 21st century tools have solved a 17th century mystery. And English literature may never look the same again. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. About a week ago, as we record this, the world of literary scholarship received some astonishing news. A copy of Shakespeare's first folio, housed at the Free Library in Philadelphia, once belonged to John Milton, author of Paradise Lost and the writer many consider the second greatest poet in the English language. And not only that, This first folio contained Milton's own notes on Shakespeare in his own handwriting, something that had never been realized until now. This remarkable discovery was made possible by a combination of hard work, serendipity, and most importantly, the real-time connections made possible by 21st century technology. On September 9th, Professor Jason Scott Warren of Cambridge University sent a direct message on Twitter to Professor Claire M. L. Bourne at Penn State. Professor Bourne had noticed notes in the margins of this first folio 11 years ago when she was a grad student, and she'd recently written about them. After they talked, Professor Scott Warren wrote a blog post about what he thought he'd found. It included pictures of the first folio that Professor Bourne had taken over the years. Then he shared it on Twitter, hoping he could crowdsource a fact check of the discovery. It worked. Scholars from around the world weighed in, and six days later the news was out. This book is, most likely, John Milton's copy of Shakespeare. For everything that's modern about this discovery, there's also something very old-fashioned. It reminds us that there are amazing early books like this one that are still out there waiting to be found. And that reminds us of the importance of libraries. If this book had been in private hands, it's likely we would never have known about it. Instead, it was in safekeeping in a library. And more than that, a library that gives access to scholars. We're very fortunate to bring you a conversation now with the two scholars who made this discovery possible, two good friends of the Folger. Dr. Claire M. L. Bourne, Assistant Professor of English at Penn State University, and Dr. Jason Scott Warren, Lecturer and Director of Studies in English at the University of Cambridge. This podcast is called We Shall Jointly Labor. Claire and Jason are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. First of all, both of you, congratulations. What a discovery. It's so exciting. Thank you. Well, why don't we start at the beginning of all of this, and why don't we start with you, Claire? Tell me how you first came upon this annotated first folio in the Free Library of Philadelphia. Well, I actually saw it for the first time in a graduate course um, in my first year of my PhD at UPenn. There I was taking a class and they took us over to the free library to do a session with some of the items in the collection there, which is something that the librarians at the free library do quite often and quite often with this object too. And it was there as an example of an object that contained traces of early reading. 
I quickly became fascinated by it. The the annotations in the book seemed sort of a cut above what you tend to see in um, early printed books. Oh, now that's interesting. Why don't we? I mm-hmm. want to pick up on that. I'm just picturing you. You're 22, what, 23 years old? Oh no, a little older than that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we'll not get into the age, but anyway, okay. you're, you're in you're in your 20s, and yeah. here you're looking at these markings. So, and you say your first reaction was it right there in the room like hmm wow this this seems like more uh, than just some some reader yeah i would say it was probably a kind of collective reaction in the room first of all it's a shakespeare first folio so which is always um, exciting hadn't seen very many of those before and here's here's one that shows evidence of an early hand of an early reader truly engaging in a very granular localized way with two of our most canonical Shakespeare texts, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet. So started asking questions. Well, how did the reader know to make these changes? Are these changes that are coming from the reader's own uh, brain, own knowledge of these plays, or from somewhere else? And so that was the animating question of the seminar paper I wrote for that class. And that was the foundation for this essay that I worked on um, for the better part of a decade. Um, And that came out last year, and that Jason read and looked at the book with with these new eyes. Right. And, And while we're in this moment where you're looking at this first folio, help us visualize what these notes look like for people who haven't, you know, studied the the photos that have been in the coverage of this. What, what kind of notes did this reader make? You know, what do they say, refer to, pick up on? You, you mentioned the, the plays, but w- sure. give us an example so we can picture it. Yeah, so there's several different kinds of uh, what I would call reader's marks. So um, one kind, there are a couple of these, references to other books. Um, we have the reader adding a second stanza to a song in Measure for Measure. So underneath the first stanza of the song, it says, see the end of this play for the second stanza, and you turn to the end of the play, and then you see the second stanza inscribed there. We also have efforts to improve the text, so to fix typographical errors, also to finesse meter. And then uh, the annotations that are most interesting to me are where the reader is suggesting alternative readings to certain words. So they're, they're, so they're all these different kinds of handwritten, scribbled-in notes in there. And That's right. And Claire, you wrote all this up, and you included it, as you say, in, in a chapter in a book of uh, on early modern English marginalia. But you never mentioned the name of Milton, do you, right? You just call no, this, <laughs> this note-taker Reader A. That's right. Yeah. And this is where you come in, Jason. Uh, You, as I understand, you also wrote a chapter in this book. Uh, So is this where you came upon Claire's research or were were you you one of those contributors who doesn't read the other people's chapters? I I was I was trying to be the good contributor who does read the other people's chapters. Well done. So so (laughs) so I had my free copy of the book. And I was uh, starting to turn my mind to my teaching in the autumn. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be teaching a textual studies class, probably the same sort of class that Claire was first introduced to that folio in. So I thought I should go and read some of this new collection and see what what I could draw on for my teaching. And is that where you saw the photo of the notes written in this first folio that Claire researched? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think 
one of the um, the things about this article was it sort of brought together photos of the notes for the first time, I guess. This is the first time these images of these things had already been published. Then I think, you know, it makes all the difference to be able to actually see them, to see what the interventions look like, not just to have them described. And I think that was... Right. Was building so how quickly did it hit you that this reader might be Milton? I mean, was it like this lightning bolt? That this guy, or was it more like, hmm, this guy's handwriting looks familiar? I was trying to reconstruct that, actually. I was kind of leafing through the article thinking, how far did I get? before I started to suspect. And uh, I don't know, I think I have a sort of bad mental habit of often when I'm reading about readers, I sort of start to fantasize a kind of, you know, mm, that handwriting looks a bit familiar. And uh, <laughs> That's part and of the problem with these discoveries or, or, exactly, or hopeful yeah. alleged discoveries. You want it to be so much yeah. the, the, the person you hope it to be. Yeah, that's right. So I go away and I check and usually I discover that I'm wrong. But I think in this case, I guess it was partly because Claire was describing the subtleties of what the reader was doing with the text and the way that the reader was consulting quarto copies, comparing them with the folio, and then writing in alternative readings, but sometimes leaving both readings to stand as though they were sort of allowing both readings as possibilities. So, you know, there was a kind of emerging sense of the sophistication of this reader. And and then there was the kind of dating of the reading. So what Claire established was that some parts of this reading have to be done after 1637 when the quarto uh, of Romeo and Juliet in particular is published. So I guess I was sort of thinking, you know, 1640-ish subtle reader. <laughs> and then Dare I hope. To, yeah, uh-huh. yeah the, the, the hand looked a bit <laughs> like Milton in places. Uh, okay. So it was this slow burn for you, it sounds like. I think it was a kind of, yeah, a slow, I mean, a slow burn of several contributing factors. And I think maybe another factor is that I have in the distant past spent some time looking at Milton's corrections to his own texts. Uh, We have one of those in the Cambridge University Library. So one of the first things I did was went away and called that up, a corrected copy of Lycidas. And actually looking at the way he's correcting in the margins, you sort of, you know, there was a lot of similarity there as well. So things started to add up. And similarity, do you mean literally on the level of of handwriting and the way a a serif would be uh, used or not used? Yeah, on the level of handwriting and kind of on the way that he keys the uh, annotations to the text. So he'll use like a little cross or an asterisk to kind of mark where the word that he's replacing should go. And maybe something also about the handwriting that I think when Milton's correcting, actually his handwriting isn't his most generic kind of handwriting. I think his handwriting is sort of on good behavior. Um, uh, Or just, I don't know, perhaps because you're interacting with print and you're trying to clarify the printed text. So somehow your handwriting slightly takes on a a printed quality. (laughs) Not not mine, but that's interesting. Um, I, I feel that maybe we should remind our listeners at this point of the relationship between Milton and Shakespeare. Just remind us why it's a big deal that this reader A would be Milton and not some, you know, some other random learned guy with a a good library in the 17th century. Uh, I think Milton is a writer who absorbs a great deal from Shakespeare. And I think any reader of Milton who's familiar with Shakespeare will immediately start to pick up the whispers and the echoes of Shakespeare in his writings. So, the, the Miltonic text is already to some extent a kind of tissue of 
Shakespearean rustlings. And I guess that, I mean, one of the, the, the crassest way that people have put it to me is that, you know, this is a case of number two reading number one. You know, this is the second, the, the second, the second greatest writer of all time reading the first greatest writer of all time. <laughs> I know there are scholars out there who would balk at that, you know, who'd want to say, I don't know, this is number one reading number two, maybe. Um, it's a, you know, a massively influential writer at a formative stage of his career, reading the works of Shakespeare almost in their entirety and responding to them. And and those rustlings you were talking about, where is the Shakespeare in, in Milton? Just give us some examples. Well, I guess everyone might, would have their own version of where the Shakespeare is in Milton. And that's the difficulty with rustlings. You know, I've always been really fascinated by Comus, by his early mask, uh, Comus, where he is experimenting with dramatic form, experimenting with characterization. And, um, you know, whereas masks are often slightly frictionless texts. Um, in Milton's mask, uh, nothing could be further from the case. It's a very sort of knotty, intricate text with passages of extremely intense argument between characters who are kind of locked in combat. And I think that's one of the places where I always thought, you know, this is Milton really learning a lot from Shakespeare. This is someone who's read Measure for Measure, who's uh, seen those dialogues between Isabella and Angelo, and who kind of really, you know, has imbibed and understood how you craft spiky dialogue. Claire, let me turn back to you now. You were talking earlier about how you noticed some hints to perhaps not the identity, the specific identity of the reader, or did you? I mean, you were talking about the particularly Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, uh, that this reader was comparing the texts in, in folios to other versions available at the time. Yeah, that's right. What I did was I went through these two plays and compared them to all the quarto texts from the 17th century of these plays. And through that kind of slow, very, very slow, painstaking process, it became very clear to me that uh, this reader was collating himself against, or could be, it could have been herself too, um, against the fifth quarter of Romeo and Juliet, which is 1637. When it comes to Hamlet, it could have been several of the quarto editions, but I would surmise that it was probably the 1637 edition of Hamlet, um, since both of them were published by the same publisher, and there's evidence that they were still for sale as a pair around 1660. So I did that work of trying to figure out where these changes came from, and uh, just that um, this reader was comparing the folio text, the big authoritative folio text, against very late quartos really turns on its head our idea of textual authority. And that really interested me, whether this reader was Milton or someone else. You can only hope that you send something like this out into the world and someone sees the handwriting and maybe recognizes it from something else they've looked at. But never in a million years would I have guessed that that person would be uh, Milton. Oh, I got because that was my next question, whether uh -huh. the, the name Milton, whether that name came to mind, because w what you're talking about are these kind of corrections or edits or kind of a combination yes, of the right. two. And it and it sounds as if you're implying you saw that there was a uh, a real literary imagination at work or a literary sensibility at work in looking at this text. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think, um, to the fact that this reader did not cross out one variant in favor of another variant uh, shows that the reader was really interested in interpretive possibility in these texts. So that, that means, on the one hand, that 
the sense of Shakespeare as a fixed monolith was not operative for this reader. Um, and on the other hand, that this reader was kind of reveling in um, the kind of flux, the interpretive flux of these texts, which, you know, I, I've often used images of this book to teach my students about textual variants. Um, and it's kind of a backdoor into close reading. And it's really fun, too. So um, I liked to imagine this reader engaging in that kind of, of pleasurable reading practice. So yes, definitely a literary sensibility. Why is this significant? Because of the literary sensibility? Or is this just not the way most people read back then? Because we can't assume people read the same through the ages, or can we? When, when you look at what early modern readers wrote in their playbooks, it's usually a few corrections here and there, maybe adding a missing speech prefix, but nothing, nothing that I have seen on the level of this, th- this level of engagement. So is, is Claudius in Hamlet a blunt king? Hamlet calls him a blunt king in the folio text when he's talking to Gertrude, or is he a bloat king? Um, which is what the Cordos print. So is he blunt, which might refer to his impotence, or is he bloat, insatiable, and indulgent? That makes a big difference whether Hamlet calls his uncle one thing or the other. Oh, and that's what you mean by interpretive yes, possibility. Exactly, yes. Interesting. So Jason, before you went public, you contacted Claire, right, before you wrote up your yeah. blog post where you announced yeah. this or, or put it out there. So how did you two text or talk on the phone? So I sent Claire. I was aware that Claire was uh, a big Twitter presence. I haven't met Claire, um, and uh, you know we hadn't run into each other at conferences. But I knew she was a, a you know, a, a Twitter star, which um, is a, a situation that I have a certain envy for because I tend to get two likes for everything I tweet. Um, <laughs> so, so I thought the first thing to do is to direct message Claire, and, and you know I was looking for some signs of reassurance that I hadn't just kind of flipped at that point. I was really looking for a you know is this actually possible? So that was my initial reaching out. So you DM'd Claire. Claire, what was that? What was that like? I mean, how exciting! Well, he sent me. Uh, can I can I run something by you? I'm like. Okay. <laughs> One of your many fans. So he sent me his, uh, his blog post, and he sort of uh, mocked that up. And I opened it, and I took a look at it. And I think my heart just skipped a beat when I saw the similarities between the images of the annotations in the Free Library First Folio and the images of Milton's handwriting in other textual objects that we know Milton owned and wrote in. Um, and I also did appreciate a lot the sort of tentative nature with which uh, Jason presented this hypothesis, this proposition. And I think Twitter was the perfect venue uh, to, to float this idea. So you hadn't seen Milton's handwriting until you got this DM, this text from someone you had no idea who it was. Exactly. I had never, I had never encountered it. Yeah. So you just, did you flip? I mean, I... Yes. <laughs> it was a pretty it was a pretty astonishing moment. You know, again, you, you can only hope that your scholarship will find an audience, but to have this piece of work that I'd worked on for so long come under Jason's eyes and for him to see what he saw, it just goes to show that you can look at an object for years and years and years using your lenses and then someone else brings their lenses to bear on that object and they see something completely different. And so for that reason, um, that sort of aha moment, that that kind of excitement of collaboration actually happening, I think that's that's what excited me so much in that particular moment. So what did you write back? 
And 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 Jason, um, I'll let Claire answer this first. But what were yeah. you looking for from Claire that you, you know, got in touch with her before you went you went public? So Claire, what did what did you write back? I think I wrote. OMG, <laughs> you know, Twitter, Twitter speak, um, just OMG, like I'm kind of speechless, just like I am right now reenacting this particular moment. Uh, but then I said, I think I find the way you presented the case very persuasive. I find the visual evidence very persuasive. And yeah, and Jason can take it from there. <laughs> How did you respond to OMG, Jason? So, OMG, I think I was looking, I was really <laughs> looking for some reassurance that I, I was still sa- still of sound mind. Uh, so I sent it, actually, I sent the draft to a few people. So um, I think After Claire, that OMG from Claire, you, you then yeah, went on to get other yeah, ones. Yeah, uh-huh. to my wife and to a, a couple of friends. And, um, and I, um, but just looking for reassurance because it was just a very strange space to be in having this weird claim this bizarre thing which had just sort of erupted that afternoon and uh you you feel as though somehow uh and and, you know did we always know maybe we always knew there was a milton first folio you know perhaps uh, i've just like forgotten that everyone knows this already or you know or maybe i don't know someone else is discovering it even now in some other part of the world (laughs) because you know this article is out there um so you feel you, you start to lose it a bit so you you look for people to sort of hold your hand at that point and what reassurance did you get that eventually enabled you to, to say, OK, I'm ready. I'm ready to put it out there. It took a while, actually. I started getting some sort of positive responses and, and Claire's, uh, wow, yes. And yeah, why not? Um, that sounds like a really amazing possibility. But I, I was still quite nervous. So I sort of sat on it for actually part of the next day. I just wanted to go and consult a few more books just to kind of compare more examples of his hand and, you know, just make sure that because you, you worry a lot about, you know, you know, what will happen to your academic reputation if this turns out to be <laughs> nonsense. You're, you'll you know, you, forever be the person who said who cried Milton. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I still have that fear of I'm still walking around with that fear of being shredded, actually, even today. So. Oh, that's awful. Well, you did. You did write up the blog post, but it's not like you and you made this very uh, strong argument, but it's not like you said, I am now going to say in this post that definitely John Milton's copy of the Shakespeare's uh, first folio of 1623. I mean, it almost you read it and, and it almost seems like you're saying here. Wow. Look what I yeah. think I've found. But someone please tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, I kind of said it and I didn't say it. Uh, I think uh, I-, I wanted some kind of deniability, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I-, I also liked the sense of, you know, the evidence sort of, uh, I don't know, I-, I tried to arrange the evidence, I think, so that it's sort of built up a bit in a sort of slightly in a troubling way. So that, you know, some of the examples that I provided were cases where you could doubt, you could legitimately doubt, you know, well, that doesn't quite look like that. You know, you could sort of Cavill. And actually, when I went to the text, when I was comparing the hands, when I was doing that process, I sort of thought, actually, you know, if you find, you know, he's written this word here, and he's written the same word there. And actually, they are slightly different, you know, but nonetheless, the fact that they're different is not convincing me that this isn't the same hand, you know, it's, it looks like the same hand, even though there are kind of differences of execution. So I think I sort of presented some bits of evidence where you could say, mm, not quite not sure about that. And then there were like little tiny bits of evidence, which I think the most persuasive one was the way that he wrote the word he, 
Um, and you're just able to sort of present the word he in, in the folio and the word he in another Miltonic source. And just something about the, the way that the letters were formed, you know, the way that the, the right leg of the H just didn't quite hit the ground before it went up into the E. Those two words just looked so blindingly similar that I felt that was, you know, a sort of clincher. So I don't know. I so was hedging, hedging bets. I picture you, you, you post, you hit you know, send or whatever, and and then you sit by your computer and wait. So, how fast did you get a response? What kind of response did you get? And have you gotten any any significant pushback? Well, it was very typical of me because I I pressed uh, you know go public on the post uh, you know with great trepidation, and then I think I cycled home, and then I got and I and I told Claire that I'd published it, and then she said, "Yeah, but have you tweeted about it?" And uh, you know, like obviously, it doesn't actually you know. Just it doesn't pressing exist. publish on the post right. it still Tweet. doesn't Tweet. exist exactly so you actually have to be brave and put the tweet out there so <laughs> so it took a little, there was a little, another little time lag there then uh you know it was really in the next you know couple of hours that things started rolling in you know people were kind of responding to the tweet kind of saying hey this actually looks quite interesting and uh people you know confessing that maybe they weren't experts but nonetheless from you know their expertise sometimes paleographers working in different areas you know this looked plausible and then uh, you know after a little while actually quite quickly you know some real kind of card carrying miltonists started to write saying well i suppose the equivalent of omg mm. <laughs> Yeah. I want to I want to talk more about the social media aspect of this, but before we do that, and I'll direct this to you, Jason, because you're more the Milton guy, and and Claire, you can weigh in if if you'd like. What do you think Milton was up to with these notes? Because Claire has made this case that you know there's an interpretive um, mind going on here. You both have spoken to that, but do you think Milton was editing um, the folio editing Shakespeare to make the poetry better? Or or was he just fixing what he saw as inconsistencies among the different texts? You know, what, what was Milton doing there, do you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Um, Claire's article is in a way a con- contribution to a growing body of scholarly work, which is about the early status and reception of the Shakespearean text. So, you know, what exactly what kind of status does Shakespeare have? How do people treat Shakespeare in this period? And particularly work, I guess, uh, initiated by Sonia Masai to do with kind of um, the tradition of editing Shakespeare before the kind of great editorial tradition as we're familiar with it. And a a process of going to early copies of the texts and saying, actually, readers are starting to do editorial work quite early on. You know, they are starting to recognize textual instability and plurality and to start and to, to do interesting things with it. I, so I think that Milton has to be placed somewhere in inside that process. You know, Milton is another of these uh, early readers who is clearly sensitive to the plural nature of the text that he's dealing with. And he's going in there and he's intervening to, to improve the text or to open the text up and kind of understand what's going on at particular points in it. I think a lot will depend on when exactly we think he is doing these readings and whether we think these are his first readings or whether these are re-readings. And so I think that to some extent, we probably have to kind of think about this folio in relation to other texts that he might have had access to. I mean, I guess that what Claire's done is prove that he has quarto editions of the plays as well as the folio. So he has multiple copies of these plays. It's possible that, uh, you know, he's been reading them maybe over many years. And I think so we, we need to understand more about that process. I think before we can really come up with a conclusive answer to the question of what he's doing. One other thing I would add to that is in 
Milton's interest in the other things that Shakespeare might have been reading or the other sources that Shakespeare is drawing from, we see Milton not trying to stabilize Shakespeare, but to show that Shakespeare is bringing together lots of different texts, adding them to his own text to create these plays. Um, So one reference to songs and sonnets, otherwise known as Tottle's Miscellany, um, and we know that it's to uh, one of the editions published in the late 16th century because the reader actually provides the page number, and when you go and check all those editions, several of them match up to that page number. So next to the Gravedigger song at the end of Hamlet, it's a, a poem that is published in the late 16th century as the aged lover renounceth love. And it's, it's published in, in this book that uh, we today we refer to as Toddle's Miscellany. So this is Milton recognizing this song um, as a poem that has appeared in another book that he's familiar with. And so he's noting that. The other reference is to Purchase's Pilgrims, which was published in 1625. So it couldn't have been Shakespeare's actual source for this passage in The Tempest. But Purchase's Pilgrims does contain some of the texts. It's a compendium of travel narratives. It contains some of the texts that um, we think Shakespeare used as source material for The Tempest. Uh, And maybe it's to isolate the material that's non-Shakespearean. That could be one explanation for it. But maybe it's just to show how Shakespeare, like a lot of early modern writers, is bringing together material from lots of different places. And recognizing Shakespeare's borrowing of it. Recognizing that Shakespeare's borrowing, exactly, um, from from this other source. Well, you both have alluded to this, but I I think it's really interesting. It looks as if this discovery uh, might not have been possible earlier before social media and digitization and these other modern developments in in scholarship. And Claire, why don't don't you spell that out for us a a little more clearly? And, And do you feel that way? Yeah, I absolutely do. So the reason that this essay of mine was published in the first place was actually because of Twitter. So the story about Twitter goes back a little bit further um, than Jason reaching out to me a couple of weeks ago. I had a fellowship at the Folger a few years ago, and I started tweeting out images of the books I was looking at. I was surveying one copy of every edition of every play up to 1700 in their collection. And so there was a lot to tweet about. And um, Kathy Atchison, who's the editor of the Early uh, Modern English, English Marginalia volume reached out to me and she said, I've seen all these images on Twitter that you've been sharing and I'm putting together this volume. Do you have anything to contribute? And my mind immediately went to this first folio piece, which I'd been trying to find a home for for several years. So um, I think that now that rare book libraries like the Folger are allowing uh, researchers to take photographs, to share photographs, it ups the chance of that kind of serendipitous moment where you see something that you didn't know you were looking for. And, and, and they're not just these massive discoveries like, like this one. And Jason, this really exciting aspect of this whole story is something that you talked about in a, in a BBC interview recently. And you used social media to, as you say, to, to kind of crowdsource and fact check your, your hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just thought it was really exciting that at a stage where it was still relatively tentative, you could go out there and have the news circulate really rapidly. And, you know, I imagine that the proposition was in the hands of the community of Milton scholars, uh, you know, within a few hours. Let me just ask this one last question. What do you think 
is ahead? What's the the next step with all of this, considering all of these 21st century related differences in the way scholarship is is being done? Are, are you expecting more new ideas or paths for research or, or gopher holes that you could both be going down? And, and Jason, you've gotten all this feedback from, from other scholars. Are, are they expecting more discoveries of this sort to come in, in the Milton field? I'm, I'm sure there will be many more discoveries of this kind. I mean, I think that as libraries are opening up to digital photography and uh, getting serious about cataloging books in more detail, they're really cataloging with attention to annotations, readers' marks. Uh, you know, that information is growing all the time and people are going to be piecing the jigsaw together and uh, and and making discoveries of this kind, I think. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. Probably also more discoveries of books from Milton's library as well, because I think now we <laughs> have a much clearer idea of the kinds of things he's doing with his books. I think it will be easier to uh, identify copies of books from his collection. And Claire, as the uh, Twitter star here, as the, as the, <laughs> the Shakespeare uh, influencer, social media influencer, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, from the Shakespeare angle, I think it's really um, special to be able to see an early reader engaging with the whole corpus. Um, and the fact that this reader is Milton, someone we know has an astonishing literary sensibility. Um, we can now trace uh, the way that Milton's interactions with the folio texts um, seep into his own work. Um, I think we're going to learn a little bit more about what's going on in this folio now that we have this enormous new context in which to, to place the book and, and the reader's marks um, inside of it. Well, this has been, it's even a more fascinating story than I, than I suspected. I want to thank you both so much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. And Jason, you too. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Dr. Claire M. L. Bourne is an assistant professor of English at Penn State University. Dr. Jason Scott Warren is a college lecturer and director of studies in English at Cambridge University in England. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, We Shall Jointly Labor, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, Craig Johnson at WPSU Public Radio in State College, Pennsylvania, and K.J. Thoraronson at K.J. Sound Studio in Cambridge, England. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, and if you're looking for a way to let other people know about it, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really is the best way to help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself in Washington, D.C., please come and visit us on Capitol Hill. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with a first folio, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We'd love to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.